Welcome to another episode of the Goldust Podcast. If you haven't already, click subscribe and look out for new episodes releasing every other Friday. We hope everybody found value in our last episode around prostate cancer. If it helped just one person, it did its job. Before we introduce today's guest, as always, we want to mention our partnership with clothing company, Capo. The meaning behind the brand runs much deeper. The Northwest of England clothing brands strive to provide premium aesthetic fitting and quality clothing at affordable prices. Check out their products at www.capouk.com and on Instagram at capouk. Now for today's guest, here is a snippet of what to expect. In my opinion, true coaching at the highest level is about things we've just been talking about it's about your instincts and and your intuition and your connection with the players uh, and trust so uh, there's things technology can enhance you know uh, technically the way we can break things down now but in, in a sport like ours that's played the way it is with so much so much action not, you know, very rare in, in rugby league is something a truly a close skill. It's the psychology of it. It's the it's the it's the group's connection. Uh, it's committing to a plan. It's committing to a, a group of, of people. Uh, I think human interaction, emotion, understanding one another, uh, playing in flow, having fun. Is, uh, if I say 95%, then it's probably more, isn't it? We're excited to welcome Matthew Pete onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. Matt is currently the head coach at Wigan Warriors, taking that role prior to the start of the 2022 season. In his first two seasons in charge, Matt's Wigan team has won the Grand Final, the Challenge Cup, and the League Leader Shield, while he has also won Super League Head Coach of the Year. He absolutely transformed a team while also playing exciting and free-flowing rugby. Pete initially started his journey as a scholarship coach at Wigan in 2008, working his way through the ranks and joined Sale Sharks as their high-performance manager before going back to Wigan as an assistant coach and then into his current role as head coach. We've been fortunate to spend some time in the environment at Wigan Warriors and can attest to the incredible environment that Matt and his staff have created. What he is doing is truly Goldust. Matty, thank you for your time and welcome to the Goldust podcast. Great to be here. So Matty, the first question is always that we ask. So to us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Uh, to me, it's about trying to find that sweet spot between challenge, challenging yourself, challenging individuals, challenging the group, uh, but with a, a high level of support, wrapping that care and support around yourself, around the group and around the individuals you work with. And then you can continually seek to improve, create new ground. But I think getting the balance between pushing for improvement and knowing that that, that support is is around you and the group, I think, is, is goldust to me. Well, what initially drew you to coaching rugby league? And how has your coaching journey evolved over the years, Matt? In hindsight, you don't think this at the time, but I think I was always, even as a player, even at school, even when I was playing professionally, uh, I was probably always more interested in the team and the process and why we were doing certain things and why it was working and why it wasn't working then then I was in just my own performance I, I couldn't tell you why but I'd often be the the player who was you know speaking to coaches about how we was training or trying to have an influence on the team or how we were going to play watching things about behind the scenes that process of bringing a group together and improving people I've always been drawn to it. The first time I did it, 
formally, I guess, was I was playing at Lee, but I got asked to just attend a training session, as you do when you're playing a bit. Someone asked me to go and give a hand, just a parent, who, I, who was a friend of mine, his, team, his son's team under-11s, and he didn't really have a rugby background, so he asked me to go to one session. And I went to that, and then I just continued attending, went watching the weekend's game, and then went to the next session, the next session. I ended up taking that team all the way through to under-18s from under-11s. And along the way, I started getting involved in more and more things, and you know, local representative teams, and attending coach education nights and reading and always looking to learn and before I knew it I was I was coaching at Wigan. You mentioned the obviously coaching at Wigan. In October of of twenty one, after your first year as the head coach, uh, you led the team to the Challenge Cup final or Challenge Cup final win and you was named Super League Coach of the Year in the same year. What did you learn about yourself during that period? Well, I learned a lot. One thing that stands out to me is I always thought it wasn't about winning and it wasn't about the results. Why I love coaching. I knew it wasn't after that season because even after winning the Challenge Cup, it wasn't like I'd reached some end of the road or, you know, I felt like I'd really accomplished much. It was more how much I loved the bits in between. You know, the results were great or not so great, the highs and the lows of, of winning and losing. But my my great days were always, you know, coming in when a problem needed solving, dealing with a player uh, or picking the team, like the kind of the process. You know, the results were great, the results were really uh, vindicate or validate everything you're doing for the outside world. But internally, I love I love the process. So the process is, and by that I mean picking the team, how are we going to practice, you know, how are we going to deal with a certain player, how are we going to present a meeting, when are we going to leave the lads' time off, when are we going to train hard, when are we going to train light, all that which results in the performance, results in the results, uh, is what drives me, what I love, my passion. So how do you approach building team chemistry and fostering a sense of camaraderie among your players, Matt? Because it sounds like this process is an enjoyable experience for you to work through. But when you when you start to build this chemistry and camaraderie comes, it's very evident watching your teams play. It's dynamic, isn't it? I hope so. Uh, it's very conscious. It's not like every now and then we'll take the lads out for a drink or go bowling. It's uh, it's as planned and as premeditated as our tactical work and our technical work. You know, we have a syllabus. The players don't know we do. <clears throat> they just turn up for work and and buy into what we throw at them. But we work through a. Uh, a process of building safety within the group, lots of small conversations, casual conversations over breakfast, over lunch, chatting about anything and everything. And then we have some, some a lot of fun. And we also have a lot of deep conversations intertwined with the, the fun and the lighthearted conversations. So lots of connecting in small groups, lots of talking in, in circles and uh, sharing ideas. But I think establishing that safety right from the outset is the key. Building that trust that everyone's opinion is welcome. No real hierarchy when it comes to, like I say, an opinion, speaking up, being part of the culture. Everyone has to feel safe when they step into work, when they're, when they're in conversation. And I think from that, point of safety you can build deep trust deep connection and then when when it does come time to solving conflict which happens a lot and varying degrees it's a lot easier to have those difficult conversations because there's some depth to the relationship so that's our approach uh i, I always found it really awkward watching lads trying to challenge each other during the season on things like 
kick chase or kick pressure or effort related instances in games when they didn't really have any depth to the relationship like where I feel like if there's trust between the two people and they've got some knowledge of each other where they come from and what they're about then that conversation's a lot more empathetic a lot more supportive a lot more positive even if it's if it's conflict you mentioned in that answer about having no hierarchy and people having opinions and 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 being in a in a safe place in team settings with that what does empowerment mean for you empowerment just means trust i guess from from you know how much trust I suppose me as a head coach, it's mine to give out, isn't it? Responsibility or ours as coaching staff. But it's more of a collaboration here. Like it's a constant thing, that empowerment. We want all our players to feel empowered. They're here because they have talent and they've been selected. You know, it's a it's an elite organization. So to bring them into a, a team and a club like this and then not trust them and not give them the power to to influence how we play and how we train and the decisions we make in games, out of games, is uh is foolish for me. You've you've got all this knowledge and expertise in, in the building, whether it's players or staff. It's my job as a as a leader here to tap into all that. Everyone feels empowered when they come into this building. You know, I'd be I'd be really I'd be really I'd be sad if I didn't feel like my players felt that they had uh, trust. And uh, I feel that's how you get the best out of the group. And uh, when people feel part of the process, collaboration rather than a dictatorship, then I feel like you get the best, your best camaraderie, your best results when players can go out and play their game that they've had an influence in. Again, it's quite structured how we do that. We have a leadership group. We have an emerging leadership group. We have what we call our sat-nav meetings, which, you know, the spine of the team, basically. And we talk through anything and everything about it. the last game, the upcoming game, you know, different things we've seen, what the team's doing, how we should train. So, yeah, it's very collaborative here. What does earning the right to influence mean to you? Uh, I guess it comes out to trust again. You know, you build up credits of trust, and this is everyone. It's not just the captain or myself. It's you know, it's building up those credits of trust with the group and with each individual. And uh, you get trust just by doing what you say you're going to do. I believe committing to something, and that's the same for the for the playing group. Being present in your conversations builds trust. As a coach, certainly, but I think the players as well, if they come into meetings and, and they're engaged on the field, they're engaged, they're completely present, and they repeatedly do what they're going to say they're going to do, then then they build that trust and then you become an influencer, don't you? And uh, it's educating players who are influential that they have a, I suppose, a power and a responsibility. You know, there's some players in, in organisations who are influencers and they can use it uh, I guess against the team vision, and uh, it can be, it can sabotage what a team's trying to to do. So we just have a lot of open conversations about things like this. Hopefully, the players are on board. When you group, you've got some mavericks. You've got, you've got game changers. How do you accommodate players who provide moments of magic and can live just in the moment while still having the principles, being able to maintain the principles and disciplines of, of how you want your team to play? It's a good question. I mean, come game day, I don't want the players overly thinking about the structure or the system or the week or the meetings. It's Game day is about the players expressing themselves and being in the moment, being in flow. We, we'll play our best rugby as a team and the individuals when they're, uh, as you mentioned, in flow without thought, playing. There's some non-negotiables, but these players are involved in drawing up the plan, in drawing up the non-negotiables. So 
you know, the obvious ones, if you pick up our Spani, like Harry, Jay, Bevan, they're involved in, in what our non-negotiables are and they speak up during the week about what we're going to do. So ultimately, those things you talk about, the structure and the system, they own it. Like, so the effort areas, the kick chest, the nitty gritty, you know, putting your body in front when it hurts. Like these players are leading that as well. You know, the, the courage and the bravery. So as long as it's underpinned by commitment and, and trying to do what's best for the team, these players then have the freedom to express themselves. That's why they've been they've been brought here. They've been brought here because they've got special ability. And there is a plan, there is a structure uh, or a system. You can call it what you want. Something that we're agreed to, the way we're going to play. And there are some boundaries. But we agree the boundaries. And the best way I've heard it is described before, and I think it's the same for your environment as well as the way you play the game. You are, If you think of a great piece of art, painting or sculpture, whatever it may be, there's still always a boundary. There's still always a frame or an edging to it. But then it's for the players to colour it in, it's the players to paint. And I think it's a great way to go about it. Like We give you a bit of a map, a bit of a drawing, but how you want to fill in the gaps with that's where your talent and your abilities come to the fore and you're allowed to showcase yourself. And I love watching it as well. I think anyone who loves watching sport, they want to see Mavericks. They want to see something that's a bit different. Everything the same, you know, soon becomes, not only does it become boring and less entertaining, it becomes easier for oppositions to, to shut down, you know, so... If we're not expecting it, you know, it's very difficult for other teams to prepare for as well. So it's uh, great for the spectator. It's great for entertainment, but also it, it's conducive to winning games as well. Luke, you've got some special players there. There's no doubt it, no doubt about it. But when you're actually bringing in talent, Matt, what are some of the intangible qualities that you look for before you select them? Uh we have like quite a simple set list, and, and some of it's open to interpretation. But it's generally what you don't hear about them as well. You know, there's not some players you ask around, and you know there could be some negative stories off the field things, and particularly if it's repeated, you just don't need to bring that drama into your club. You know, some players who, who can and can turn the the careers around as well. But think if there's re repeated red flags off the field. It, you would stay aware. We look for players who are competitive. That's really open to interpretation. But if what we're seeing on the footage, if what we're hearing when we ask around tells you that they train hard, they want to improve. If you see little unselfish actions when you watch the games, aside from the highlights, you see how they work off the ball. That, that competitive nature is uh, something that would draw us to a player. We ask around a lot of small conversations. You know, you, it's quite a village rugby league. There's not a huge player pool. So you get, if people tell you he's a good bloke, enough people tell you then it generally stacks up. You know, we've got people around the world who we trust. And uh, you don't always get it 100% right. But if you, if you do your homework, I think competitive nature wants to improve. You can have a Zoom with a player from overseas sometimes. And uh, the body language will either draw you to them or it will, will put you off. Sometimes players can seem disinterested. Uh, they might not be prepared for the call. They've not done the homework on the club. And they're all little red flags that make you wonder if a player is taking it seriously enough to join this sort of organisation. Where if other players, they come onto the call, you know, they're well prepared, they're engaged in the call, they've done their homework. And... Uh, it would draw you to them more, I think, uh, more than what you see on the field sometimes, that they're engaged, they want to get better. Some players, if you get the, <clears throat> if you get the impression that they're doing you a favour just coming onto a Zoom or arriving for a, a lunch meeting, then uh, we would probably look elsewhere. How do you ensure that your coaching methods align with the team's needs and wants while still staying true to the, the club's vision? I think... I've been at this club a very long time. So the club's vision 
and my, my own vision and our vision. If you look at my the staff I work with, Sean O'Loughlin, Thomas Lulawai, Sean Wayne, Chris Radlinski, it's very entwined. It's very there's not a real great degree of separation between the team and the club here. All over, you know, you've been into the environment. The history of the of the club is is everywhere you look. Our our philosophy is a simple one. You'll see it everywhere about working hard and staying humble, dreaming big. It's hard to escape, so I don't really see a separation between the club and my values and the team's values. And if I was ever unsure, I think I'd just reflect on it. And I, I guess where I'm conscious of it sometimes is, is in the media, more than with the players, presenting the right message for the club and the game, keeping that at heart as well. We're all ambassadors for this sport. Sometimes it's better to, you know, if you're frustrated or you've got a strong opinion on certain things, just to sit on it, go through the right channels. Well, I've been fortunate, Matty, to you've invited me in to come watch training, be around the environment. It is very inclusive, very open. However, it's how things are done, not what's done. The magic lies in the orbit. I was at a, the very first meeting at the beginning of last year, one of the first meetings anyway, and you posed a question to the lads. It was the space between your note or the gap between when you actually asked another question or prodded them a little bit. So you gave them oxygen. You gave them opportunity to think about the the response. Now, I guess it's similar to when you have your team's losing halftime. Take us through what a typical halftime may look like where it's a really challenging game, things are not going particularly well for you. What's that procedure look like? Okay, so typical is 15 minutes, isn't it? So I'm very conscious not to speak too soon and uh, and leave the lads with a lot of time after we've decided how we're going to win the game. So we take our time as a staff. Myself and Tommy will have had some conversations and Sean, but then I encourage them to get around the players and gather a few opinions, particularly so Tommy would get around our spine players. Sean might have a chat with the forwards or the defensive edges. Then we come together in a separate room, ideally. At a home game, we come together in a separate room. We have some key stats that we reflect on. I get the opinions of both my coaches, what the group's feeling. Sometimes the group's feeling a little bit different to us, and it's, they're probably closer to the truth than we are. So most of the time, we'll dig into what the players are thinking. And we'll have some footage as well through the game. Our analyst is clipping key moments, some automatically, some at our request. And we'll decide ultimately what what's going to win us the game, what's going to change the game, what's going to keep us in front or what needs to change. So it's all about constructing the most clear message you can off the back of all that information. When I speak to the players, very often it's, the same question, really. What are we thinking? What are we feeling? And we'll have an open discussion around that. And then it's a matter of summarising it. So if you think about what the players are telling us, I'm, more, I'm probably quite, pretty much know what they're going to tell us because of the conversation that's taking place. So they'll they'll have a discussion then about what they're seeing and feeling, which will probably be the key messages of what's happened in the first half. I'll bring it together and add some clarity I might back up with what they have said with some stats or footage. And we'll always finish with how we're going to win the game. So it could have been a brilliant first half. It could have been a shocking first half. But ultimately, they're going to leave the, that meeting uh, with a short, clear focus for what will get the job done. And then, we're, you know, within that, there's some individual messages as well. Get around the play. A few individuals, short and sharp. But that would be a real... That would be the most regular half-time, what it would look like. Occasionally, I'll hardly speak. Occasionally, an assistant will speak more than I will. Uh, and every now and then, you've got, to, you've got to change the tone of the room. So that might be straight in. No stats, no footage, just, you know, you can imagine. But that's rare. During games, when it's tight, what lets you know when to make... Tactical changes? A lot of planning before the game. 
So we will have a real uh, tight interchange plan with some freedom within it. So it might be changes with like a four or five minute window. To construct that, we'll look at what's been working well for us recently. We'll look at, there's some live things, you know, that aren't the same every week, whether a player's coming back from injury or a player's carrying an injury or a player's had illness in the week, or, you know, certain things that might unfold, whether, you know, a certain side of the field going to do more defending than they normally do. So you, you take on all, on board all the apps and all the analysis from opposition games, how they manage their substitutions, you know, some some teams save all their stuff for the second half, so that might influence your plan. So you do have a pretty tight plan. I've got the opinions of everyone else. You know, Tommy's beside me, Lockers is in constant conversation. But ultimately, you've got to follow your intuition as well. Being organised and structured so then you can watch the game and, and follow, your, follow your gut, I guess you would call it, is, uh, is crucial. I feel when you... If you're not organised, it's hard to find your own flaw during the game. You know, we talk about players finding their flaw. But for a coach just to be able to sit back and watch and feel how the game's unfolding, is you have to have done a lot. You have to a lot, taken a lot of decisions away that you might be concerned about so you can just go with the flaw. Intuition's a key word, isn't it? While you're on about that, having balance... Of, of the demands of being an egg coach, Matt, and also being a family man. How does that work? So that life-work balance, so that you are you're in flow as well, but equally you've you've got you've got the support of your family around you. I don't know where to start with this one, but we speak a lot as a team and as a club about getting that balance right to the players and to the staff. Uh, and it's a whole club thing, this. It's not just a performance department. To be the best player or coach or administrator, you need that balance in your life where you feel centred enough to make good decisions. So I've got to model that and buy into it as well. So if I'm, if the players see me here at six o'clock in the morning and not leaving till ten o'clock at night and not having, not having uh, meaningful relationships away from the club, I can't expect them to do the same. So. What I mean by that is I can't then tell them to engage with their families when they go home. Leading a good life away from from work, you're, uh, you're balanced and you're the best of yourself. We involve family a lot here uh, in our club. So we talk more about a work-life blend you know, than balance. Balance suggests two separate things. And in some ways it is, but I'm part of the journey here it makes life a lot easier. So we'll have a lot of events where families are together, partners are together. Things like we make a big thing of Father's Day and Mother's Day of things for the children. The club do a great job. You know, Chris Rudlinski and the team here are constantly asking what more they can do for families. Game day here is a real family event. So while the lads are getting on with work, fam families are often mingling before the game and after the game. It's it's very much like when the kids, when the players are playing as kids, where all the parents and, and girlfriends and wives are waiting for them in the clubhouse to, you know, win, lose or draw. It's a similar atmosphere in there. So we do a lot. I do a lot. I'm very conscious of it. Don't always get it right. Whether you take your coaching head into the, into the home, you know, at times it's, it happens and uh, you've just got to con got to be conscious about it and try and check yourself. Try and put your phone away, your laptop away and, and be present with your, your family, you know, your children, like you would with a player. Being present in each in the conversation that's happening here and now, if you if you can constantly try that, you know, you don't go far wrong. But to do that, sometimes you have to say no to a conversation as well or or reschedule because you you know you can't be present. So that ability to just say to someone, you know, I can't talk right now, but if you give me an hour or can I catch you tomorrow or whatever it may be, I feel like it's important because if you're not present during the conversation, you lose trust. You talked a little bit in that about Coach Ed and whether he decides to take it home or not. In terms of your education, what do you do to stay on top of emerging trends and strategies and 
ensure that your coaching remains sharp and relevant? Uh, well, probably like yourselves, coaching enthusiasts, you, you read a lot. You know, you can't avoid a lot of the stuff now. If you follow the right, if you're in the right newsletters and searches on, on social media and whatnot, people know what you're interested in. You get flooded with information around coaching. Uh, we have a, a strong network, don't we, of, of people who across it. So you share ideas with them. You they know you love talking about how teams are training. A lot of the a lot of these conversations I've found now are actually if you read enough about coaching and leadership and sport, it's the same messaging, isn't it? A lot. So if you wanna if you want to improve yourself or look outside of that, you've got to look outside of the coaching sphere, I think, and outside of the sporting mm -hmm. world. Quite often things that come to sport things that have occurred in another industry or walk alive already. So you've got to read and listen to things away from sport, whether it's teaching or counselling or science, you know, if it's the military, it's probably you'll probably find things that are going trends that are going to occur in sport will happen in, in big business first. You know, obviously there's things like Artificial intelligence is the big one at the moment. You know, if you people have probably known that was coming for four or five years, and sport now is probably now drifting into into coaching and sport. So, if you want to stay ahead of the game and at the sharp end, I think you've got to look outside of sport for. Completely agree with that. <clears throat> the similarities and and our differences, in actual fact, between business and sport other than wearing a shirt and tie or a, or a kit, you know, the mental capacity to be able to adapt and adopt quickly, make quick decisions. So for yourself, well, that learning. Just on, just on that key, like the most important thing in all this is people, isn't it? Like it's people. So anyone who's dealing with people, whether it's, you know, a school teacher, a priest, a parent, you know, there's some of the books you can read about psychology or, understanding people better and then you can apply that first and foremost to yourself the most important part of what that you want to do is is on yourself if you're constantly worrying about how you're going to affect the team or a player or your staff most often it's it's doing the work on yourself so and then you can impart that knowledge hopefully to other people but i think trying to sort yourself out first is, is not a bad way to go we're influencers to, to varying degrees. But for you, what have been the most valuable lessons you've learned so far as a head coach in the Super League? I think that not trying to trying to stay level. Trying to stay level with... Uh, and it's not just being a head coach in Super League, is it? It's uh, as a person, I think, life throws highs and lows at you. And it's something you hear all the time about controlling the controllables, but if you can just try and keep your own your own ship steady, start again starting with yourself, your own behaviour, then your your team's behaviour, and by steady I mean not getting too up on on the highs and the wins and the pats on the back. Most challenging when when it's rough, not being moody, not doubting the process too much. You know you've got to look at things and you've got to investigate how we can be better. But that should be the same. Regardless of the result, regardless of who's injured, who's fit, or who's suspending and who's who's not, uh, keep the process the same. Keep the way you talk to people the same. If you're normally quite positive with your body language when you go in and you meet people, don't change because you've lost a few games or because there's a bit of heat or because someone's not played well for a few weeks. That consistency, that presence, that's what builds the trust through good times and bad. So I think that's, I'm not saying I've learned it because it's probably something I always thought, but it's been tested and I find it's a major test and one that stands us in good stead as a group. The players feedback on it all the time when we ask their opinions that they like it, that we're, we're pretty steady and how we go about our business. We expect the same from them. You talk quite a bit there about being consistent in good and bad. So you lose a few games just maintaining consistency in your behaviour and in the staff's behaviour so that players know what they're going to get. But when things are going bad, 
what role do you see mental resilience playing in in the performance of your team and how do you work on developing that within players i think language is very important here we say it good and bad on here because we know what we mean winning and losing but if your reference point that you set at the start of the season or start of your work is is learning and improving, you can always see the positive, can't you? So you, resilience just becomes like, what have we learned? Like, if the question is always, what have we learned? What have we learned? How do we improve? How do we grow? How do we get better? Then the tough times actually you can present as opportunities, and uh, or they are opportunities, aren't they? You know. It's not a false message. In the so-called dark times or the tough times, it's it's actually where the most growth can come and where the most excitement should be, really. You know, I've been told this and I've thought this in, in other aspects of life, but our stories of teams so far over the last two seasons, our toughest times have been losing two semifinals, one against Leeds, were at home which ended our season. And then last year in the in the Cup against Hull KR, unfortunately, we went on not to lose another game off the back of a, a devastatingly crushing loss. So resilient just becomes learning from tough times. And that just is a mindset and often comes back to language and messaging. And that, that exa- that's one clear example, the whole team's resilience. But then there's individual resilience you know, the player's injured or a player's having a run of poor games. What are they learning? You know, why why is it not happening for you? What part of your of your life can can we tweak to try and get these performance better at the weekend? You know, it might not be a training thing, it might be a lifestyle thing, or it might be a psychology. It might be something in your psychology that we need to work on. So, you know, resilience is complex. But I think if you constantly talk about being consistent uh, and, and what you learn, and if that message don't ch- change during the good times, then when trouble comes or losses come or poor form comes or injury comes, the message is the same. What can we learn? What, what's great about it? We met. So last week I asked you a question. You've come off depending on what people would define success as, two successful seasons. So first season won the Challenge Cup, Coach of the Year. Second year you win the league and the grand final. So you've had two seasons. You've won in both years. You've been successful as a collective. You've been successful as a coach. And I asked the question around what are your biggest cha- what's your biggest challenge? What What do you need to do this coming year? you basically said the same thing back. You said, I've just got to be the best learner. And in that, you talked about how things change during a season. I'm just wondering if you can expand on that one as well. Oh, it's it's just so live. It's so live. So, you know, every team at the moment will have their plan about how they want to play, what the best team is. And it will, it will be hit with a, a sledgehammer 20 times during the season. So, I believe that the coaches and the players and the teams that are more successful are the ones that learn and adapt along the way. Now, pre-season and planning is all about making your, if you talk about a ship or a bus, whatever you want to call it, making it as solid as as possible, preparing it for for what's to come, agreeing your values, agreeing the way you're going to play, what we can improve, what's great. But it's more about on week 11, when you come into work, what are we learning? What needs to adapt? Who's doing great? Who needs who needs more of one thing than less of another? Uh, and that's the art, I think, that the not, not just me, the staff and the players working together and just constantly trying to get better through the year. Then the way our, our competition is, is structured, it's at the business end of the year all your lessons you've learned should stand you in good stead. And if you, if you stand still, you know, whichever team starts the year and stands still will, will not be successful at the end. It could actually be a team who have a bumpy ride at the start or in the middle uh, that end up bouncing at the end and, and finishing strong. And 
one thing I did learn in, in the first year in this job, again, I already was aware of it, but I felt it hard, was smooth seas through the season. Might not prepare you for that, you know, what do we call it, rough waters or at the end of the season. So a bit of a, a, a few smacks in the face along the way is not a bad thing as long as you're learning. You stick together. You learn. You keep talking to to one another the right manner. Keep taking the positives out of your situations. And uh, again, it starts with me first. I've got to be watching everything all the time, learning how can I improve, not just on last year, but on last week and yesterday. Uh, no, I think being the best learning organisation, being the best learning coach is an approach that suits me, suits us. Now, technology is something that is, it moves along quite quickly. What role do you see technology playing in the future? Not, not the game, but of coaching. And how do you currently incorporate that into your coaching practice? Uh, I'll start with where we incorporate it. So there's a hell of a lot of video analysis, hell of a lot of statistics based on the game. Uh, everything's broken down now. If you look at GPS, if you look at in-game data, you know everything's measured now from the you know from the lads' sleep and hydration, every meter they cover, what speed, acceleration, decelerations. Uh, so as coaches, you're flooded with this information. The lads have access to all the training sessions online, again, broken down into all different components. They can just watch their own involvements. Same for opposition players. And we, we create space in our schedule uh, for the lads to learn and uh, immerse themselves in all this information. And, you know, if you call it technology, different ways of interpreting the game. And I, and I think it's going to go to another level now with artificial intelligence and virtual reality. You've seen during during lockdown how people can use technology to engage in different ways. You know, don't have to be face to face all the time. So that opens up new worlds. But and it's a big but, it's always the last five percent, I think, is technology. It will never be the difference between good and great, I don't think, in my opinion. True coaching uh, at the highest level is about the things we've just been talking about. It's about your instincts and and your intuition and your connection with the players and trust. So uh, there's things technology can enhance. You know, uh, technically the way we can break things down now. But in, in a sport like ours that's played the way it is with so much, so much action, it's not, you know, very rare in rugby league is something a, truly a close skill. It's the psychology of it. It's the, it's the group's connection. It's committing to a plan. It's committing to a, a group of, of people. I think human interaction, emotion, understanding one another, Playing in flow, having fun is, uh, if I say 95%, then it's probably more, isn't it? So, yeah, I think technology is great. I end elite. It can take it. It can improve you when you're looking for marginal gains. It, it's there to be had, but you need to be careful you don't get stuck behind a laptop or stood watching games through through lenses. You've got to, you've got to feel it. You've got to feel your players and uh, understand them, you know, you, you need to be careful you don't chase this 5% and miss the other 95 for me. Look, rugby league's a very community-based sport. What role do you see the game playing in the community and how do you encourage your players to be positive ambassadors for the sport? I, I get asked this a lot. Our players are all from communi like communities and then we suddenly start talking about sport like it's separate. And these lads like the separate. And, uh, you know, all our players came through either a school system, a community club system. They've all got amateur coaches. They all belong to, they all went to schools. They're all got family or they needed hospitals and charities. And so all you're doing really is, is uh, staying connected to your roots. So that's all we're doing as a club, as a team, is staying connected to our roots, not distancing ourselves from where we come from that staying connected to the community 
keeps us strong because by meeting different people from different walks of life, you learn a lot. Uh, it reminds you where you come from and why you do it and probably keeps that sense of, of fun and play, for, you know, for our, our players to go into schools and community clubs. It, uh, it reminds them why they did it and it reminds them that for a lot of it was a lifetime ambition. But also we in the community, whether it's, uh, you know, whoever it might be, seeing us out there, it strengthens that bond, so we get the support of them as well, and they know that, you know, we've got their backs and and they have ours, and I think it improves our attendances. It improves the goodwill throughout the town for the team, and you can feel it at Wigan at the moment. You can feel it throughout the borough. You know, there's an excitement. The club here on game days is thriving, uh, and it's kind of a symbiotic thing, isn't it? You know, we look after our own and they look after us and pretty soon our players will retire and they'll, they'll join back the community in one way or another or, or they're, they're already entwined in it because the kids are at these schools and our community clubs keep producing players for us and bringing atmosphere to our games. So I don't really see it as two separate entities, sport and community. You know, the strength of this club is the strength of the community and quite often when this club and Wigan Athletic are thriving, our town is doing well and got some energy about it so it's it's important we commit a lot of time to it it's actually in our schedule as you would say coming on most days most weeks in the year there's blocks of community engagement where all the players jump into into minibuses and get out which provides great learning experiences for them togetherness team bonding it's almost like a you know it's one thing going to as we mentioned bowling or go-karting paintballing this force fun or you get out and work together and share some experiences, meet new people together, and you know it can have similar, if not better, effect. Well, you mentioned that you actually incorporate the community program into the into the players' work program because they're working, aren't they? I know they may be part of the community, but if it's the tail end of a day where they're going, they've worked all day, they then have to go out at the back end of a day uh, where you've actually got it factored in is that it's during the day which is it makes it all inclusive it's part of the daily program although it's it's an integral part which you've just clearly mentioned yeah I think if you think something's important but you just ask lads to do it in the spare time it's not that important is it but as soon as you you put it in amongst skill training and weights training and fitness training and in there is community not at the end of the day, when players are fresh. And then you talk about it, you reflect it, show, you show photos and footage and it puts it on an equal footing. And, and you don't want it to be something that takes away from the players' family time. If you put it a Saturday night at 8 o'clock, you actually want your players with the families, don't you, at that time. So, as you mentioned, it's part of the working week. We value it. Uh, so we, we put it at the forefront of our programme. Is the magic is not what's done, it's how it's done. That's very, very evident. So listen, final question. What questions do you wish your players ask you more frequently or your staff? Uh, any, really, any. But I'd like to think we're... When you say any, Matt, can I have another 15 grand on my salary, Matt, boss? Is that a decent question? Yeah, that's that. Well, it would it would provoke some good conversation, <laughs> wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, what I mean by that is the more, more small conversations that are taking place in this building, the better. So I, I like players, and, and they know this, we, we talk about this a hell of a lot, but players coming asking about their own game is, is gold dust to, to a coach. player, And it's difficult for players, although you say it a lot, and this is why, as a coach, you've got to get out of the office and go and sit with them for a coffee or a brew because players won't always come and knock on the door and say, how do you think I'm doing? But the more conversations a coach can have with a player about how, how you think they're getting on, in line with their goals, you know, my job as a coach ultimately is if they let you know where they want to get to, the players tell you where they want to get to and you help them get there. And uh, the more conversations you have around them, two things, where they want to get to, how we can get there. Uh, it makes my job easier because it's just a 
it's just a checkpoint. Every little conversation about those things is just a, a checkpoint on their journey. So not waiting to be, you know, shall we have a chat about how you're doing? Come in. You know, how do you think I've trained today? You know, what can I focus on in, in today's training session? You can't have too many conversations with, with your players and coach play conversations. It's, it's invaluable. And uh, that's why you've got to get as much as the work done, organisation, you know, as you talk about instincts before, but you're only you're only gonna you're only gonna pick up on things through your instincts, Keith. If if you had it as a coach, you've had a good night's sleep, you've come in, you're present, things are sorted. You're not coming in to pick the team, that's been done. Training's planned. You get amongst the players and have these small conversations that you're talking about and they feel that I've got your presence and they can ask you these questions and build that connection. So it's a long winded answer to a, a simple question, but uh, I guess, how do you think I'm doing? And how are you doing? I've been asked to ask you that every now and then, wasn't it? Matty, Luke, this has been special, mate. Thank you ever so much for for creating the time to to come on the on the podcast. On behalf of David and myself and the listeners, all the best for the season. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast, and also you can visit our website at the Gold Dust Coach. Dot com. Thank you, everybody.